Father, we do come to you through Jesus because we can, because you have all the power. You're sovereign. And I pray that you will sovereignly draw us in this morning, all of those of us who are here in this part of the building, those watching online, Lord, to this particular study. Father, I pray that you will grip us. I pray that you'll speak through the text, that you would cause us to be accurate in our comments. And Lord, where we're not, may that fall on deaf ears. But Lord, I pray that we'd have a renewed appreciation and gratitude and thankfulness and awe of Jesus and you forgiving him for us. Lord, I pray that you'll open our eyes. Your word is high above us. Your thoughts are far above us. We can't make sense of how you think. Lord, I'm already thinking of something I'm going to say in a few minutes that is not how we think. We're different, but you're right and we're wrong. You're always right. We're only right when we line up with you. And so, Lord, I pray that you will align us with your thoughts this morning. Teach us your word. Lord, again, I pray that we'd have a great focus. Let your Holy Spirit really shine the light on Christ today and you as well. We ask it in his name. Amen. Matthew 27. Uh, So about six, seven weeks ago, as we're doing our study through the book of Matthew, we came up to the point where Jesus was arrested, probably about two months ago. He was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then we noticed after that, two trials, one Jewish and one Roman, each having three phases. So we spent like a month on those trials. And then we gave a week to the physical sufferings of Christ that was done before the Romans. The Roman soldiers had their way, the scourging, mocking, blaspheming, beating, slapping, spitting, and of course the crown of thorns and hitting him with a reed. All of that was done by them. And then we did the journey to the cross. And after the journey to the cross, we found him actually being crucified. And we gave a whole week to what that is like and the process and, and some of the things that began to take place there at the crucifixion. We talked about what crucifixion victims go through. And then last week, we began by noting that not only the Roman soldiers, but the crowds around the cross were mocking the Lord. Three different groups in particular named in the book of Matthew. But then we started a two-week, so last week was part one, this week is part two of a two-week study on what Jesus is saying from the cross, his words, his saying. We noted there were seven sayings of Christ recorded in the scripture. If you'll remember, we noted that the crucifixion of the Lord lasted six hours. So he began to be crucified at 9 a.m., and that will go, and he will die somewhere around 3 p.m., And so of these seven sayings, we looked at three last week because those three were said during the first three hours, from nine until noon. We're about to read another dynamic that takes place in the world. It would change the scene, a holy hush, no doubt is is going to come over that. I'm assuming there's not as much mockery and reviling. It's probably, again, a holy hush is going to set over the scene for about three hours until... The fourth saying of Christ is going to come around 3 p.m. So not a lot's being said, and you'll know why in a little bit. Not a lot's being said from noon until 3. So last week we looked at the first three. Today we want to study the, the next four, the last four. We noted that the first, fourth, and seventh have something in common. They're all prayers. And that was very important. The first saying of Christ, quickly in review, the Lord, as he's being crucified, and this is one the grammar tells us was repeated over and over. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Note it, he prayed, 
father. He's calling God his father. As he, even on the cross, the Lord was so used to praying in his life that even on a cross, being crucified, his natural reaction is to start praying. And notice what his prayer was. Where I was angry and bitter and I want judgment to fall on these people who have unjustly put him on a cross, the Lord is asking the Father, in essence, again, I'm not going to re-preach the whole point, he's not asking the Lord to save them in the eternal sense from all their sins. What he was asking, because if that's all it takes is Jesus praying, then he doesn't need to die on the cross. He's asking the Father not to destroy them until he has paid for sin and until they know what they have done, until they're able to see their sin. We offered that that was definitely the Roman soldiers, probably included the crowds, and the New Testament seems to hint that it also included even the Jewish leaders who were mostly responsible for Jesus being crucified. And he's praying, Father, forgive Hold off. Let me pay for sin before you destroy them. Then show them their sin. And some of them ended up believing, and many did not. His second saying, and so I reversed the order last week because I wanted to finish, not a big thing. I think I reversed the order. It's hard to really say, but most would say the second thing that Christ says from the cross is to one of the thieves. So you'll remember, Jesus is dying in the middle of two robbers, two criminals, for 2,000 years now, one of those criminals has been in heaven with the Lord and the other has been in hell for 2,000 years, almost coming up on 2,000 years. In like what, about eight more years from now, it'll be 2,000 years. One has been in hell, one has been in heaven. What happened? They both had the same access to Christ. They both began reviling and mocking Christ, but one repented. He changed his heart. His heart was changed. Something about Jesus. He ends up confessing his sin, that he is suffering justly, that Jesus is innocent, that Jesus is a king, and he recognizes has faith that Jesus as a king with a kingdom can help even him and would be willing to even help him. But all of that would be for no use unless he does the last thing. If I could boil it down... The one is sitting there listening to the whole thing. He's in hell for 2,000 years. The other one is not simply because the one asked God to save him. The one asked Jesus to save him. Have you ever asked Jesus to save you? You say, well, I know what the Bible... Have you ever asked him to save you? The one was saved and the other was not. The third thing we looked at secondly was as Jesus looks out from his cross and he sees his mother, Mary... And apparently Joseph had died, and as the oldest son, he knows that he needs to see to his mother's physical needs and taking care of that. And so he sees one of his disciples, we presume is John, and so Jesus on the cross looks to his mother Mary and says, woman, behold your son. He couldn't point as I just did. He would have to do this, no doubt, with his eyes. Woman, behold your son. In other words, you are now going to adopt him as your son. You've been looking to me as your son. We're going to transition that. Look to him as your son. And he says, son, behold your mother. You're going to step in and you're going to be my substitute, John. You're going to take care of this woman who's been my earthly mother. And we noted last week, Jesus did not call her Mary. He didn't call her Mary, mother of God, Mary, mother of grace. He didn't, he didn't call her mother even. He just called very respectfully woman because he is now distancing that relationship. She also must put her faith and trust in Christ just as every other person that becomes a Christian and goes to heaven. And so with that in mind, we now come to our fourth, and admittedly, Matthew does not cover the last four. He didn't cover any of the first three sayings of Christ, nor does he cover all of the last four. He covers the fourth one, and he alludes to the seventh one. So again, this week, we will have to go to other places to complete this particular study, not a true expositional study this week again.
Notice verse 45 in our text. Matthew 27, 45. So he's been on the cross from noon till from nine till noon. And now the sixth hour in Roman time is noon. Notice verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. That's why I believe there was this holy hush that would have set in. So darkness over all the land from noon until 3 p.m. And about the, so we don't, not, Matthew doesn't say exactly what noises are coming from the cross, from the other. He, he just moves ahead now to verse 46. This will be the key one of probably the whole message today. This will be the main one. We'll spend the most time on it is verse 46. And about the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, so I'm going to go and tell you guys, I don't know 100% how to interpret that little phrase that I just tried to say and messed the first one up really bad and the second one maybe have been better. That is to say, John, or Matthew writes, and Mark as well, what that means is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So this is what Christ cries from the cross. He says that statement, but we're told what it means. And that's an allusion back to Psalm 22, verse 1. Talk about that in a moment. Verse 47, and I'm going to confess, I'm not going to spend hardly any time on verses 47, 48, 49. They're kind of self-explanatory, except for one aspect that I don't fully know the answer. And I'm going to admit that I don't know the answer. I'm going to offer one possible solution. Look at verse 47. And some, so he cries that at 3 p.m. And some of the bystanders, can I turn, point out the word bystanders? This is not the Sanhedrin. This is not the chief priests and scribes and elders. These are the by, some of the bystanders hearing it. They heard, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Hearing that said, this man is calling on Elijah. They think he's calling for Elijah. Well, we know that's not what was happening. He was not calling for Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine. Let me point out right here. This sour wine is not the same thing that was in verse 34. If you have your Bible, look over at verse 34. They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. Mark says wine mixed with myrrh. Remember, that was a narcotic to knock the edge off as they're getting ready to drive spikes through their hands and feet. The Lord rejected that. I will go and tell you, he's going to end up drinking this. This sour wine is what the Roman soldiers would drink. It's, it's cheap. It's watered down. It's not just wine. It's not the good stuff. It's not the pure stuff. Actually, this would quench your thirst much better than the good stuff. But they don't have big salaries, so they take some wine and they load it down with a lot of water. And this is what's put in the sponge and put on a hyssop branch and lifted up to the Lord's mouth. Look again at verse 47. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Now, let me real quickly, we're still reading, but let me insert this. Our fifth saying in a few minutes, we're going to find out, actually happens just before that verse 48. So before Matthew's condensing, what, you, what, what it looks like here is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, oh, this man's calling on Elijah, and immediately someone goes. So here's what that tells us. Here's a clue to file away. 
The fourth saying from the cross and the fifth saying from the cross are so close together. They happen really close together, and off goes this person and gets this, puts it up to the Lord's mouth, and we will find that he actually does drink this. Now verse 49, but the others said, so the other bystanders said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Wait, let's see if Elijah actually comes. So let me just throw this out because I'm not, I don't want to break the flow when we get into verse 46. Let me throw this out right now as a possible explanation. Why do they think he's called on Elijah? Guys, you've got like four languages that are kind of coming into play in this New Testament time. Four languages, yeah. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, right? Hebrew. But then you move forward, and then by the time of Christ, the Greeks have had their day. Their empire is just barely off the scene, and the Romans are the new guys because the Romans defeated the Greeks. But the Greek language is still dominant, and that would be what the average person would speak, even in Palestine. Pretty much everybody's going to speak Greek. Old Testament written in Hebrew, then you have Greek. And then the Latin language, the language of the Romans, I don't think many people, everyone wouldn't know that yet, and that was the language of the government. The Greek was still sticking around. It was having such a strong impact. But their Bible, the Jewish Bible, was written in Hebrew. You said, Jeff, I thought you said there were four. Right. You remember in the Old Testament when the Jews are carried away captive, the northern ten tribes in 722 B.C., they're carried captive away to Assyria. The Assyrians defeated them and carried them exile. Here's what that means. Their best and brightest were carried to another land of the Jews, the northern tribes. What we now look at is Samaria, Galilee in the New Testament. But then the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they end up going into captivity to the Babylonians. This is a different kingdom, and that's in 586 B.C. All that to say this, by the time all of that plays out, you have Israel's best and brightest going into these other lands, and after hundreds of years, these, these conquering nations brought in other people and brought them to replace these Jews, and then they end up some intermingling and intermarrying, and that's where the Samaritans come from. But then by the, by the time hundreds of years have gone by, they no longer have a pure Hebrew language. They have their Bible written in Hebrew, but after hundreds of years by the time of Christ, the average person, bystanders, would not be able to read the Hebrew Bible. That's why the first translation of the Bible was into the Greek language. So here these guys are standing there. I believe the Sanhedrin... They would know the old Hebrew and Aramaic, Aramaic being the new version, the newer version of, but different, the new version of Hebrew. They would know that, but the average bystander would not. And so the bystanders standing here, they're hearing Jesus say something. They don't understand what it is. They hear these vowel sounds. He's calling on Elijah because there was a tradition that Elijah would come and help Jews that were in distress. There, I just covered like three verses in that short amount of time. So I feel good. But we're really going to focus on verse 46. Now, when you look back at verse 49, and let's get to 50, because 50 is kind of an overview and nonspecific. But the other said, wait. So one brings the sponge filled with the sour wine, offers it. The other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And in Matthew, just very simply says, and Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up. His spirit. I want you to remember that phrase, yielded up his spirit. Would you notice with me, I already have it on your handout, the fourth saying of Christ is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice again verse 
45. Now from the sixth hour, noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. Quickly, let me say two or three things about this, this verse. This darkness is not to be explained naturally. This was not an eclipse. The Passover season would be at the new moon. And I don't know anything about astronomy, but the astronomers tell us that it would be impossible for an eclipse to happen at, at the new moon, nor would an eclipse last for three hours. This is totally supernatural. What does darkness mean? Just last week, my devotions had me in the Old Testament prophet Amos. And Amos refers to darkness as a judgment of God. So here's what this means. God is angry. God is angry about sin, and God is angry about what's being done to his son, and God is also angry at his son during this time of darkness. And you're thinking, why would God be angry at his son? Well, we're going to explain. What is this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a quote, as I said a while ago, from Psalm 22, verse 1. If you were to go look there, you would find in English, the psalm begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is written by David, the king, 1,000 years in advance. So 1,000 years before Jesus says it here, David has already penned this. So here's the thing. Is this just a case of Jesus expiring slowly and life ebbing out of him on the cross? He remembers one of his favorite psalms and starts quoting it to give comfort? No. When David wrote Psalm 22, verse 1, by the way, if you were to go read Psalm 22, you'd find between 15 or 20 fulfilled prophecies that were fulfilled around the time of the crucifixion. Here's my point. What David wrote, he did not experience. He was actually writing prophetically about his greatest descendant that would come 1,000 years later. And so Jesus is the one... David was not abandoned and forsaken by God, but Jesus is actually forsaken and abandoned by the Lord. And so he cries out, truly, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When did Christ become forsaken? Well, the Bible says he came into the world as one of us, as a human being, and he came to his own. He came to the Jewish people and presented himself, had been doing this for three years, and his own nation rejected, forsaken forsook him, abandoned him. When he launched out for ministry, again, three years prior to this, his own brothers in his house, at first, they rejected him. He preached at his hometown of Nazareth, his hometown where he had grown up for 30 years. They reject him. He ends up having this large crowd in John chapter 6, thousands, because we know there were 5,000 males, adult males that were fed. This crowd is following him around the Sea of Galilee. When Jesus preaches a hard sermon, they end up rejecting him as well, and they end up forsaking the Lord. So he's forsaken by his household, by his hometown, by his own nation, by this multitude. He ends up actually being, let me double check, make sure. Oh, go ahead and write that because I haven't got to that yet, and I'm already past where I should have been. Yes, this is important, all right? This, what we just read the fourth saying of Christ from the cross is the only time in all of the New Testament that Jesus doesn't refer to God as Father in addressing him. So this is key. Not when he's talking about God, the Father. He may not always refer to him as Father. But every time, some 20 sometimes, that the Lord Jesus is addressing God Almighty, he always addresses him as Father except for this one time. This one time hanging on the cross he does not address God as his father. So what is taking place? Here we go again. Let's quickly review. 
He's rejected by his brothers, by his hometown, by his whole nation, by a massive crowd in John chapter 6. And then when he's arrested, he's actually forsaken by his own disciples, one of whom is leading the betrayal against him to arrest him, and the other 11 leave and forsake him. And now, through it all, the one thing that has been the constant, in other words, he can't count on anyone, but the one thing he could always count on was his heavenly Father's love and fellowship and affection and closeness that's always been there. And yet now, for three hours on the cross, the Lord is experiencing this darkness and aloneness and he's not just, this is important, he's not just feeling forsaken, Jesus actually is forsaken. So I want to ask you, why is Jesus forsaken? Not just feeling it, he is forsaken even by God the Father. Even God the Father has now abandoned Jesus. He is truly all alone. Why? You'll not find these on your handout, but I hope that what we're about to look at, three quick verses, we're not going to labor them. I hope you'll write these references over to the side because if I were going to tell anybody, hey, you want to really understand three verses that tell why Jesus was forsaken on the cross, you need to get these three verses. So if you have your Bible, look at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. I want you to see this as it's in front of you. Notice 1 John chapter 4. Notice verse number 10. This is the disciple. Many years later, some 50, some years later, the one who was at the foot of the cross, who adopted Mary as his mother, years later, decades later, he's writing verse 10. Why was Jesus abandoned? Look at verse 10. In this is love. In this is love. Not that we have loved God. That's not how it happened. No one in here loved God first. You say, I do love God. Praise the Lord. I do too. But the Bible says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Here's how it happened. God loved us so much that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Notice the Bible does not say God sent his son here to make propitiation for our sins. He sent his son to be propitiation for our sins. Now, there's two ways I could ask this question. This is not to embarrass anyone. I just kind of want to get a feel. Could, who would be honest enough? And by the way, if you do know what this means, you don't need to raise your hand. Who would be honest enough? You don't have to raise it up high. Just kind of maybe slip it up and say, Jeff, if you put me on the spot right now and made me stand up there with a microphone, I don't know that I have a really great grasp on the word propitiation. You raise your hand, you're like, I raise your hand. Is that you? If your hand doesn't go up, that means I could probably point to you and have you explain to us. So let me ask it again. Let me get a good look. Uh, raise your hand, you're like, I, I don't know that I really have a full, a good understanding of the word propitiation. All right? So I would assume the rest do. All right. Let me encourage you. Quick side note. When you're reading your Bible, when you come across a word like propitiation, you're like, I don't really know what that means. Let's keep on trucking. Do not keep on trucking. Stop and study that. Get you a Bible dictionary. Look it up online, whatever you need to do. It might give you an accurate answer. Maybe, maybe not. Get you a good Bible dictionary. Don't move forward until you know what the word propitiation. Now, let me pick somebody that, that is, be a good, that had their hand down. Um, no, I'm kidding. I'm not going to do that. Let's do this, right? Look at the verse one more time and let's touch it quickly. 
Why is God forsaking Christ on the cross for these three hours? In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Hey, guys, listen. You remember how in the land of Canaan, Israel was coming in and destroying these nations. They had all these false gods, and they would make these offerings to the gods. Why? Because in their mind, the gods are angry, and we need to make these offerings to appease and satisfy and mollify the anger of these gods. And sometimes they would even offer their own children, literally offer their sons as sacrifice, human sacrifices to the gods. And you may think, wait a minute, doesn't the true God of the Bible require sacrifices? Yes, he did, but two things about that. Number one, those other gods were not true gods. God is the true God. Number two, the sacrifices they were making would not please God. God ordered and demanded Old Testament sacrifices that had to meet certain criteria, but even those ultimately did not appease and mollify and satisfy the wrath of God against sin. So here's the situation. Jesus, as we sang and referred to a while ago, he is our king. He is our king. He's the king of all the kings. And the men, I think you guys studied this this morning, I was told. I wasn't over there as part of it, but I think you studied it as part of your Sunday school. Jesus is the king of all the kings, and Jesus is the greatest prophet who's ever come. The prophet from God who tells us things about God that we don't know, introduces us to the mind of God, as we heard a while ago. That's who Jesus is. He's the prophet. He's the great king, but he's also our great high priest. He's the greatest priest representing mankind going to God. So here's what happened. Jesus knows that God's anger and wrath is massive against the sin of man. And so he, being our great high priest, does something about it. He comes to earth not to make an offering uh, as a propitiation and appeasement of God's wrath. And let's turn that wrath to favor. He doesn't just come to make an offering. He comes as the actual sacrifice himself. So what's happening on the cross? From noon to three, Jesus is making propitiation for our sins. The second one is just a few pages away. Look over at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter number 2. Notice verse 24. You may want to write this reference. 1 John 4 verse 10. Now we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24. Why is God abandoning Christ on the cross? He himself, here's why, he himself bore our sins Hey, guys, act like you haven't heard this before. Let the Bible hit you fresh and new. What happened on the cross? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. By his wounds, you have been healed. Do you see what's happening? God is angry, and so Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice so that God will look favorably upon us. He takes the wrath of God so that we get the favor of God. Here now we find out that he bears our sins, and so for us to be healed, he has to be wounded. He's bearing our sins in his body on the cross. One more, one of my favorite, you hear me use it quite often, is 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 21, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Why is Jesus forsaken on the cross? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he, this is God the Father, he made him, him is Jesus. For our, hear this fresh and new. For our sake, he made him to be sin 
who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So for us to have righteousness, Christ has to become sin itself. For us to be healed, he has to be wounded. For us to have God's favor, he has to take and absorb God's judgment and wrath as a propitiation. He has to be the offering that God will pour out his wrath upon. That's why Christ is being forsaken on the cross by God. What we have is God forsaking God. Did you catch what we just read? These three things. Here's what this tells us. This is important. On the cross... At least three dynamics are happening. Each one would have been tormentuous to Jesus. Number one, because he is God and he is holy. He absolutely hates and despises sin. And yet he has now become the very thing he despises most. That would be torment to him. Uh, He has become sin itself. I don't know how that was happening, but that's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 says. He became sin and he hates it. He hates what he has to become. Number two, because he has become sin, he has brought on the wrath of God. And we're talking about the Almighty, God the Almighty, who has omnipotent power pouring out his wrath on Christ. The third thing that is happening, because Christ has become sin, God the Father has abandoned him and forsaken him. There is no comfort. It's not like, hey, son, I have to do this, but let me comfort you and then pour out wrath and comfort. and pour. No, he is totally forsaken. Jesus is all alone. Write this thought, and now we need to return for a few minutes. And I've already alluded, if you haven't picked it up, we're going to spend a, the longest part of our time this morning will be on this verse 46. We need to return our thoughts back to the Garden of Gethsemane. If you're taking notes, write this thought. These three hours from noon until three, not the scourging. So here at first. These three hours that we're describing in this darkness when he's forsaken by God, not just feeling it, but actually experiencing the wrath of God and being God forsaken. These three hours, not just the scourging and not the first three hours on the cross is what Jesus was agonizing over in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ prayed earnestly to the Father. His sweat became as great drops of blood. He's, he is praying so profusely, and on a cold night, he is sweating, and he's begging God, God, if if it is possible, if there's any other way, I don't want to have to drink this bitter cup of paying for man's sin. I don't want to experience your wrath. If there's any other way, can we just let this cup pass away from me? He doesn't want to do it. He's not fearing and dreading scourging. He's not fearing and dreading the first three hours of the cross. What he's dreading and fearing and trying to avoid and yet surrendering to the will of God is this three hours. This is key. I want to repeat some things I said a couple of months ago. What Jesus is going through on the cross, ladies and gentlemen, is not a case that Jesus goes through all the exact same things that all other crucifixion victims went through. But God knows who Jesus is. Listen, this is not what happened. God, knowing who Jesus is and that he's not actually sinned, his son's going to go through all the same things as everybody else who's ever been crucified. They deserved it. He doesn't. But because he's being crucified, I'm going to ascribe greater meaning to it. That is not what happened on the cross. 
It's not God the Father saying, it means more because it's my son, and therefore I'm going to count it as more. No. Jesus went through a lot of the same things that other people who were crucified on the cross went through, but none of them went through the worst things that he went through, and that's this point. That's this right here, being forsaken of God and having the wrath of God poured out upon him. You say, Jeff, what happened? What Jesus is going through, guys, in these three hours is totally unique to him. Only he has ever experienced it. So what is it? It's what we just read in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's what we read in 2 Corinthians 5. It's what happened in 1 John 4. Hear it again, fresh and new. Every single sin of every person who's ever lived and every person who ever will live, all of those sins were placed in the body. On the body, he became that sin. All of that is bearing down on the Lord, and all of that is warranting the judgment of God. Do you understand what the, the unmitigated, undiluted wrath of the Almighty is being poured down on Christ for every single sin of every person who ever has or ever will live? What that means is every sinful thought, every sinful thought, every sinful word, every sinful attitude, every sinful feeling, Again, every word, every action, every omission, every time we were supposed to do something, but we didn't do it. Oh, how much sin. Oh, how much sin is represented in this room. This room. Oh, how much sin is represented in this room in the last 24 hours. What sin has the Lord borne of yours just from the last 20, just from the last 12 hours? Last night, did you have any ungodly sinful thoughts? Did you have ungodly sinful words? Did you have sinful activity? Was there something you were supposed to do, but you ended up not doing it? All of that was bad. And we are just a fraction of a fraction of a fraction. This is what Christ is doing on the cross. There's two things the Bible wants us, every person, to feel and to contemplate. And here they are. One is the concept of hell. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking about hell. Hell is real. You may use it as a byword. You may think it's a myth. Hell is a real place. There are people there right now. Somebody's going there today, brand new. They will get their first experience of hell. It is a place of utter outer darkness far away from God there is no light it is a place of isolation it is a place of self-loathing it is a place of unquenchable thirst it is a place where the worm does not die it is a place where people burn and burn and burn and burn but they never die just burn and burn that is hell and now the second thing that the Bible demands that we think about is this the length of eternity. The length of eternity. Here's what, I need you to do this real quick. I want you to pick a number. Pick one of the nine digits, right? From one to nine. Pick one of those. And then I want you in your mind, pick another number and put some zeros. Pick quite a few zeros behind that number. Quickly, get your number, one to nine, and stick some zeros behind, quite a few zeros behind it. Have you got your number? All right. When you have that number, do you understand that if we put another zero, you say, Jeff, my number's really big. I got 37 zeros. Okay. You say, Jeff, I've got an eight followed by 37 zeros. I don't even know what that number's called. I don't either. It probably doesn't have a name. But here's the point. 
you know that big number, when we put one more zero behind it, we have now 10 times that previous number. By one zero, it is now 10 times. You thought the other number was big. Stick a zero. Here's my point. Eternity means if a person were to go to hell for however long you had your number followed by many, many zeros, if those were years, a person in the torments of hell for all that time, they are no closer to the end than when they began. Having done all of that time, and we can just keep tacking on zeros and zeros and zeros, hell and eternity, the Bible demands that every person understands. So Jeff, what's your point? This is where I know the way we think, as was pointed out earlier, is not the way God thinks. God's evaluation is the one that matters. God's evaluation is the one that is going to decide things. And by God's evaluation, it takes eternity in hell. Eternity, just keep throwing zeros. You're not getting any closer. Eternity in hell for one person to drink the cup of God's wrath for just their sin. For just their sin. Eternity in hell, just their sin. You say, Jeff, you still, you've lost me. What is the point you're making? Write this thought down. What is happening in verse 45 and 46 is for these three hours on the, Christ, on the cross, Jesus is experiencing the equivalent of the combined cups of God's wrath for all of the billions of people who, were ever, who will ever put their faith and trust in Christ as Savior. Now, I know we hear that and we say, Jeff, that is not possible. Because here's how we think. Jeff, you just said eternity is endless. You can't take eternity, one person's eternity, and, and, and just squash it into what's happening in three hours. You can't do that. Guys, that's not what I said. I'm saying you take that one person's eternity, add it to another person's eternity in hell, and another and another, and for all the people who ever put their faith and trust in Christ, billions upon billions, and that's what Christ is experiencing on the cross, the equivalent of all of that. Again, here's what we think. Jeff, that's not possible. That is just not possible. Can I propose to you here's how it is possible? This is important. What is going on from noon to 3 o'clock, you have an infinite being, infinite being, paying for a finite amount of sin. You have an infinite being paying. You say, Jeff, it's a lot of sin. Oh, it's a lot of sin, but... This is God we're talking about. Jesus is God. He's an infinite being. In three hours, you say, Jeff, I still don't see how that could be possibly accurate. I want to propose to you that as infinite God, Jesus in three hours was able to experience the equivalent of the combined cups of wrath of all the people who would ever put their faith and trust in him in that three hours because he is God. And I know it to be the case because God Almighty has a holy, just nature. And he's not going to like slip in a lesser payment. Let's just call it even. You go through the same thing that everybody else goes through on a cross. And because I know who you are, we're going to let that count for all of their eternities. No, it has to be even for even. God's holy, just nature would not let it be otherwise. That's why when we refer, let's just go ahead and say it. When we talk about the cross of Christ being the central key focal point of all of eternity, 
We mean the whole six hours, but if we mean anything, especially we're talking about these three hours of darkness. Not taking anything away from the first three. But these three hours are especially key. Now I'm almost done with this point. I want to give you one more thought, and then we're going to the the fifth saying of Christ. And we'll be brief on that one. You with me? Christ says in the first, his first word on the cross, the first one, what word was it? The very first word. He repeated it multiple times. What was the word? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And here we find the Lord is calling Father, my God, my God. So here's what that tells me. When Jesus was first put on the cross, he's talking to God as his Father. He's still in fellowship with the Lord from nine till noon. But by the end of this darkness, he's no longer in fellowship with the Lord. God has abandoned him. Guys, listen, this is a... This is where it dawns upon me that I'm guilty, and I think all of us are. None of us understand how much God really hates sin. We don't understand how totally opposed to sin. God absolutely hates it, despises it. He cannot tolerate it. We look at say, that sin's really bad, but the rest of it we just kind of wink at and nod at, and we laugh at some sin, and we tolerate some sin. But these are the really bad ones, and even we get worked up on these. All sin is intolerable to God. So much so, if you're taking notes, write this thought. Because here's a lesson for us to learn from this point. The fact that God abandoned His one and only Son because He bore our sin on the cross, guys, that is real proof that God means it when He says He will not allow anyone into heaven who is tainted by sin. We're all tainted by sin. But God will not allow anyone into heaven who is tainted by sin. You say, well, I think He'll let me in. I'm not done a lot. If he would abandon even his own son because he became our sin, trust me, he will not allow you into into heaven with any sin. We could say it another way. If God punished his own son simply because he became our substitute, uh uh-oh, did you catch it? If God would abandon and use his omnipotence to pour out wrath upon his own son because he became our substitute. He didn't even do it himself. My question is this. If God would do that, what would he do to a person who actually does the sin, hears about the death of his son and the offer that is made, and who rejects it? What will God do to the person who rejects the death of his son? Oh, you better know that it would be eternity in hell, away from God. And that is a frightening thought. So with that, I ask you, have you accepted Christ? Do you hear all of this and you sit and say, I'm the same as I always am. I've heard it a hundred times. And you're just indifferent. Or do you hear it and say, I reject it. I don't believe all of that. That sounds like a fairy tale. I'm just not buying all the eternity and the hell and the abandonment and the death on the cross. I came, I dropped in, I want to see what you are about. I, I'm not buying, I don't believe it. Okay, reject it, see what happens to you. If you're sitting here this morning and saying, oh, no, Jeff, I've accepted Christ, I ask you, when did you do that? When did you do that? Number two, this morning. John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Verse number 28. 
So the Lord has already said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And remember, they went and got a sponge. Now we're going to find out why they did this. Verse 28 of John 19. John in his version, again, none of the gospel writers cover everything. John in his version writes, after this, verse 28, after this, Jesus, so catch the wording in verse 28, multiple things are going on. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished. So here he is on the cross and he's thinking. And he knows that all was now finished, said, but look at John's little parenthetical statement. He says Jesus said this calculatingly. Jesus is intentional. He's calculating. Why? To fulfill the scripture. Let me read the verse again. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Two words, I thirst. In verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they, they being, we know that one ended up doing, they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And verse 30 starts out by saying that he received the sour wine. So what is the fifth saying from the cross? Very simply, two words, I thirst. I'm going to insert my opinion, okay? I'm, going to, I'm drawing a line here. I'm drawing a line. I don't know this to be the case. I, I think this is what happened. Guys, from 9 o'clock till noon, there's daylight. Jesus says three things. From noon until 3, there is darkness. At the end of the three hours of darkness, the Lord says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then I think some point after that, the light comes back. And then I think he says this. So here's what I'm going to propose to you. I don't know how far apart the first three sayings were, but nothing is said for the next three hours from noon to three, and the next four sayings are all very close together. If I had to guess, if I had to guess, I would say they happen within five minutes. The last four things, though each one distinct, the last four things happen probably within, within five minutes. So the fourth saying, I think there's daylight, then comes back, and that leads to the fifth and the sixth and the seventh happening pretty Pretty quick succession. So what is this fifth saying from the Lord? I thirst. Guys, it has two aspects. Watch. There's a physical aspect. And there's a prophetic aspect. If you were with us two weeks ago, I want to challenge you to think in your thoughts and answer my question. If you were with us two weeks ago, we gave a, a list of 14 descriptions of things that a person on a, on a cross experiences. You may not remember all of those, but hopefully right now you'll start remembering some of those because I want to ask my question, what do you think is the worst aspect of a crucifixion? Anybody, not just Christ. What is it that they're going through physically that is the worst thing about that cross? Was it shame? Was it the publicity of shame? Was it the horror of anticipation? Was it tetanus, fever, dizziness, sleeplessness, um, starvation? Any one of those things by themselves would be awful if you had to experience that for the next week. I would say it is none of those. Again, I'm going to give you my opinion here. This next note, I'm using the word perhaps, so that means it's my opinion. But as I think, okay, is it that or is it that or that? No. Ultimately, I narrowed down to three things in my mind that had to be, in my mind, the worst of the worst. Of what's happening on the cross. Again, fever, tetanus is shooting, bones out of joint, all of these horrible things trying to pull up on that. If you were to ask me, I would say that cr the cramping, 
that we talked about, so much fluid has been lost in the body. And man, when those muscles just start cramping, there's nothing to do. That would have to be, in, to me, in the top three. What did you have as your number one? Remember how they died. Say it. Would you write this down? Perhaps second only to suffocation, raging thirst was one of the worst parts of crucifixion. We probably don't think of it that way, but we're talking about the Lord for 18 hours has not had anything to drink. He has lost massive amounts of sweat and massive amounts of blood, and nothing is going back in. He, he turned away the offer of the previous, in verse 34 of Matthew, he turned away the offer of that drink. He didn't drink. Nothing's going in. He is extremely thirsty, and now he states it. And this thirst, I believe, along with cramping, would probably be the things that are behind. So we need oxygen all the time, and that would just trump everything else at the moment. I have to have oxygen. That's consuming my thought. I need, some, I need to breathe. So that would do over everything else. But I think these other two things are really toward the top of the list. Now think with me for a moment. It is possible for a person to be so focused on a task. If that task is so vital and so important, so life or death, a person could be so focused on a task that they could actually lose sight and suppress bodily needs. Think back before we had weapons that fire projectiles like they do. Back in 500 years ago when armies would meet, most of the time they would march around and whoever marched the best outmaneuvered the other. One side would give up or one side would run and, and, and flee. But think about when they actually got down in the valley and they started fighting. It could be hundreds and hundreds. It could even be thousands. And they would just go down there and again, maybe have something that, that, that keeps them at bay for a minute and they stab that person and they have things to throw that have something sharp on the end. But once all of that is gone, at the end of the day, it gets down to what you have in this. It is hand-to-hand -hand knife and sword fighting. And it just goes and goes and goes until some leave and there's only a few people left. And in that moment, that warrior is, he's thirsty. I mean, he's really almost dying for thirst, depending how long it goes. But he's not thinking about that. He's so focused on the battle. And when the battle is over, I need something to drink. The Lord is so focused on the cross for these six hours, but particularly these last three hours, the Lord Jesus is so vitally focused on what he is doing. When he comes out on the other side, he realizes how thirsty his body is, and he actually cries out for thirst, for water, for something, and they end up giving him this sour wine that is mostly water mixed with some wine that would quench his thirst. And so they take that and they put it on a sponge and they put it on a reed, on a branch, and they lift it up a little bit. And you can imagine, not trying to make you have, you know, some awkward thought of the Lord, but there would be a reaching out and a, and a biting into and a sucking out of, and please put it up above and just let, and it's going all over here. And he's taking everything he could possibly, he is thirsty. And he says it. And here's what blows our mind. This is the same person who created everything. This is the same person who created every raindrop. He created all the raindrops. He created every little spring of water that turns into a creek, that joins with other creeks and turns into a river and flows into those massive freshwater lakes. He's the one on the cross who's thirsty. He cries out, I thirst. And they give him something to drink. That's the physical aspect. But there was actually something... 
equal or greater to that. Look again at verse 28 quickly. Watch this clue. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. Hey, guys, listen to me. There is nothing in the Old Testament that you're going to find a prophecy that the Messiah will come and die on a cross, and when he does, he's going to say the words, I thirst. So by saying, I thirst, he's not actually fulfilling prophecy. Watch. But the Lord knows that by making his physical condition known of thirst, he knows that is going to kick into play, verse number 29. By declaring his thirst, that sets 29 into motion. Now look at verse 29, because verse 29 is a fulfillment of prophecy. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put, put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. That is actually a fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse number 21. So the Lord is actually contemplating strategically. Everything that I have to do is done. There's this one other prophecy that I can help make happen. I'm not going to do it. I'm just simply going to declare my thirst and make known my physical need. And the result will be they will then fulfill Psalm 69 verse 21. Russell Bradley Jones words it this way. He says it was not water that Jesus wanted most. It was recognition. He wanted all to see and know that he was the Messiah. Let's hit the sixth saying. We don't have to go far to find the sixth thing. Say we don't. No, it's verse 30. So that was verse 28 and 29. Look at verse number 30. Still in John 19. Here's the sixth saying of Christ from the next to the last one. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he takes it, he drinks it. He said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So now John is alluding to the seventh one by what he, how he finishes the verse. But he actually, he's the only one who tells us the sixth saying of the Lord. Look at verse 30 again. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. I'll not have you turn there. I just want you to look on the screen. Have we had time to write that? Yes. Put up Luke chapter 12, verse 50. Look at Luke 12, 50. I want you to, this is several weeks, uh, notice this, you see it? This is several weeks or months before the cross. Luke has 24 chapters. This is chapter 12. Jesus is talking. Look at this. Jesus says, I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. I have this thing I'm going to be immersed in. It's a baptism I'm going to be baptized with. And how great is my distress. What the Lord is saying. I'm already feeling the distress of what is coming. You say, what, what is this thing that go, he's going to feel great distress until it is accomplished? What is that? Until it is accomplished. It's the shadow of the cross was already overhanging the Lord weeks and months, really years in advance. But now he's really feeling it. And he's already starting to feel the great distress of that three hours on the cross. Particularly, that's already starting to play in his mind. And it's going to be there until it is accomplished. Now we're at John 19, verse 30, ladies and gentlemen. This is the good news. Because Jesus is now on the other side of the accomplishment. And he says, it is finished. If you're taking notes, I want to offer that that phrase, the sixth thing from the Lord on the cross, 
at least stands for three things. At least three things. Write them down. Number one, it is at least a sigh of relief. Do you hear it? A sigh of relief. It is finished. It is finished. Secondly, I would offer it is a declaration of accomplishment. It is finished. It's finished. It is finished. I'm relieved. This is finished. And there's this feeling of accomplishment. It is finished. And third thing I would say, it is a shout of victory. So there's this battle that is in. So he's accomplished something. He's relieved over something. And there's this battle, the battle of the ages. And the Lord knows he has now won the battle. And the battle is over. It is finished. It is at least. So let's finish that note. Watch. This is not just It is this, but it's not just the cry of a man who's relieved and glad because he knows suffering is over. I'm on the other side. I'm on the good side of those three hours. I'm relieved of that. I'll never face that again. That is finished. You say, Jeff, is it not that? Of course, it is that, but it's not just that because it is also the cry of a man who has finished his work. He's finished his work years ago. 2006, your brother was on my basketball team. And we came out of nowhere and we ended up in the, we weren't the second best team in the state, but we ended up in the championship game against the best team up in Greenville. I'll not say their name. They don't deserve to be said. But they were a little better than us. But I remember my pregame speech to that team, my team. We shouldn't have been there. We beat a team to get into the Final Four playoffs, and then we beat a lower state team. And we put up a pretty good fight for about half against this other school up in Greenville. And um, I'm kidding. Um, But I remember talking to those boys about this concept, and I want to put it to you today. Two of the best feelings in the world are accomplishment and relief. there's, There's a lot of good feelings I believe the feeling of accomplishment and relief are two of the best. There's some people who go to work and they don't work very hard and they never really feel the feeling of accomplishment. But there's others who accomplish things and they feel the satisfaction of accomplishment. But I think relief in particular, relief could be when you hear someone is better or they're safe. There is that. But when you connect the two, relief... Attached to accomplishment means there was an expectation. It's just not like, hey, did you see what we did? We accidentally stumbled around and we accomplished something. No, there was an expectation to accomplish and there was this weight of it. And then when it's done, there's this relief. I remember watching Michael Jordan. He was excited about the first championship. And he was probably excited about the second. But there hit a point you could tell the main emotion he was feeling in those Third, fourth, fifth, sixth championships was relief because everybody expected you're supposed to win. And so it was relief when he did this. Have you ever had a task in school and it was a big one and when it was done, man, you're relieved. Maybe you finished at 4 a.m. You remember that? You're so relieved. Maybe it was at work and you were given a project. Man, it's going to be like a three-month project. And when it's done, you're relieved. Some of you perhaps have had a whole year project or a three year. It's going to take three years. And after three years, you work and you work and you got your team and you're so relieved. You remember that? 
Right now in our county, I, I know one, but um, not, not fully, but there are many people in Anderson, South Carolina, who've been in the workforce for 40, 45 years. And this year, 2022, they have a date in mind. And they're going to retire. And you'd think it would be December 31st, but it's not because they've saved up their vacation days. It's going to be somewhere in November because they're going to finish with a bunch of vacation days. And they're going to walk off that last time. And some of y'all are like, oh, yeah, I remember the day. There's many folks sitting right over here. They've experienced that. It's relieving. No one has ever felt accomplishment and relief like Jesus did when he said, it is finished. Nobody's ever felt that. I believe, this again, I'm throwing, this is not in the Bible, it's not in the Bible. I believe there may have been a little chuckle after the giving of the wine. I believe there's this darkness and he cries out in the darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's crying this out. And a little bit later, the light comes back and he's on the other side, and he realizes what's happening, and there's a prophecy to be fulfilled, and he cries out, I thirst. Translation, I'm thirsty. And they go and they get him something, and it's, and it's running down, and he's trying to get what he can. And finally, you got to picture it. <laughs> he takes that drink, gets his mouth wet, licks his parched lips, and I think he probably chuckled. You say, but he's still in pain on the cross. Oh, he's in pain. It's nothing like what he's been through the last three hours. And I think after that drink, and he gathers himself and swallows real good, and then he just shouts, Tetelestai, Tetelestai, it is finished. He had set out. Do you remember as a 12-year-old boy? His mom and his dad, his mom and his stepdad lost him at the temple, and they think he, he lost them. No, they lost him. They come back three days later, and they're kind of fussing at him. And you remember what he said? I must be about my father's business. Can I change that word and not harm the text? I must be about my 12-year-old boy, 21 years before this, I must be about my father's purposes. I have to, my father has purposed some things. I have, to, Jesus viewed himself as the executor of God's will. God wills something, I make it happen. He has willed for mankind to have their sins paid, and now he's saying it is finished. One of the best things I read this week was from Russell Bradley Jones. I want you to write it down. Jones writes that Jesus did not say, so he did not say, I am finished. I've never thought of this. I read this way like, man, hello, yes. Jones writes that Jesus did not say, I am finished. Now, you're going to have more in a moment. I'm going to fill in more of what Jones writes. Jones says, Jesus did not say, I am finished. I am done. Listen, he did not say, it is all over with me. Men will have to bring their own merit as a supplement to mine. In order to be saved. That's not what he... Jesus is not saying, I'm finished. I've done my part. Now if you'll do your part with what I've done, then you can be saved. He didn't say, I'm finished. Jones writes, he said, it, not I. Write that down. He did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. Not, I am finished. He said, Jeff, you have to excited. What's the point? Here's what that means. Nothing is left to do 
to earn salvation. It's finished. I'm reading Jones the other day, and I'm reading through the book, and he starts talking about this preacher named Ebenezer Wooten. Wooten was an evangelist. Wooten had set up a tent. I'll give you a moment because I want you to hear this one. And I'm not quoting this word for word. I'm getting the gist across to you. And it must have been quite a few years ago. It was a tent meeting. I don't know if it was revival. It's probably more evangelistic. And Ebenezer Wooten had finished his meetings and he was now taking down his tent. And a young man came up and said, Mr. Wooten, what must I do to be saved? And Mr. Wooten said, it's too late. And he kept taking the tent down. And the young man disturbed and said, Mr. Wooten, what must I do to be saved? Young man, it's too late. You're too late. And the young man said, Mr. Wooten, is it because the meetings are over? Young man, I told you it's too late. Finally, he says, Mr. Wooten, is there no hope? He said, you're too late. It's too late. I've told you it's too late. Young man, you ask me what you must do to be saved. I'm telling you, you're hundreds and hundreds of years. Too late. You can't do anything to be saved. Jesus has already done everything for you to be saved. The only way for you to be saved is accepted as a free gift. Jesus said so on the cross. You can't, it's too late. You can't do anything to be saved. If Romans chapter 3, verse number 28. I shared this with a young man. I don't know if he's here this morning. I shared it with him last week. I'm not saying more than what I just said, but just the verse was needed. Romans chapter 3, verse 28, the Bible says we know, we conclude that a person, a man, is saved, justified by faith, apart, apart from works of the law. So there's working, and then there's faith. I also shared a very famous verse we talk about a lot. For by grace are you saved through faith. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And so we put those together with what the Lord is saying here. It is finished. And we learn that salvation cannot be obtained by working and being righteous or even by trying to blend. That's the point Jones was trying to make. He didn't say, I'm finished. I've done my part. You add yours. I run into people all the time. If you really question them what they're trusting, and they'll have salvation and lose it and have it and lose it and have it and lose it, they think. And they ask for it again and again and again. Why? Because they think when they blow it and mess up, they've lost the salvation. And I, I tell them, you just told me your theology. When you're doing that over and over, what you're saying is, when I'm not doing my part, living good and righteous and holy, keeping all the commandments, then I need to ask God to save me again. There has to come to a point in your life where you realize it is all Christ. It's all Him. He's paid for all of it. There's no blending of what he did on the cross plus my morality. What he did on the cross plus my religiosity. No, it's just him. Jesus says it is finished. There's nothing left to pay. And then the last thing, if you'll find me, in Luke 23. Let's finish in Luke 23. This won't take long. Luke 23, verse 46 is the final saying of Christ from the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. 
Today you will be with me in paradise. You'll not go to purgatory. Today you'll be with me in paradise. One may behold your son. Son, behold your mother. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I thirst. It is finished. Verse 46, then Jesus, calling out, note those words again, with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Father, this is our last statement from Christ, if you're filling in the notes. Father, forget, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Can we have that? I think that would be our next point on the, on the handout. Father, into your hand. Did, what do you notice about the first word? Has that struck you yet? Father. Wait a minute. He calls God Father in the first three hours. It's my God, my God. There's distance in the second three hours. But now at the end of it all, he's again calling God his Father. Keep your pen moving. I want you to write this down. Just like most dying people, Jesus had physical and family aspects to deal with. Physical issues, he was thirsting, his body was going through all kind of pain. He was dealing with all that, he had physical issues. He had family issues that demanded his attention. Just like everybody that comes to the end of life, most all of us, we're going to have physical things we're going through and we're going to be thinking through, what about my family? He had to make sure that Mary, his mother, was taken care of. He had to take care of family issues. But notice where Christ turns his attention last. His final focus was his spirit. He's aware of all the physical things. He's looked to his mother and his family, and now he turns his attention to his own spirit, his human spirit, not just the Holy Spirit. He's turning to he as a, a true human being. Jesus is the mo most unique person in all the universe. You have body, soul, spirit as a human being. He had body, soul, and spirit, and yet he's God, and the Holy Spirit is his spirit, and he's one with the Father, and I can't explain all of that. Jesus is holy, unique. He's one of a kind. Now he turns his attention to his spirit. Stalker helps us here. James Stalker writes, please get what I'm saying. Our spirit is, quote, he writes, the finest, highest, sacredest part of our being. This is where Christ points his attention, to his spirit. Why? It's the finest, highest, sacredest part of our being. He writes, of your body, soul, and spirit. You have body, soul, and spirit. He writes, that your spirit is to the rest of our nature, body and soul. Our spirit is to the rest of our nature what the flower is to the plant. How many plants are there? Oh, it's one plant, but the spirit is to our nature what the flower is to the plant. It's the best part. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this last part of that. Your spirit is the front line of our relationship with God. Your relationship with God, the spearhead, the point, the tip, the most important part of your relationship with God is your spirit. Here's what that means. You can have your hair look just right. You can wear the holy godly clothes that somebody will tell you you have to wear. You can get in a nice godly, supposed godly posture and you can turn toward Jerusalem, toward Mecca, toward whatever your favorite preacher is. You can go do whatever you want physically, but if your spirit is not right with God, your body is not right with God. It is the key to your relationship with God. Your spirit is the key part of you. It's not the only. Can I illustrate this? Watch. What is your body without the spirit? Not much. Can we agree on that? 
when you're, what is the body without the spirit? Not much. It's very little. It starts decomposing. It goes back to the ground. Your spirit just keeps on going. But the spirit longs for a body. I want to be honest. The spirit longs for a body. I have three quick thoughts and we'll be done. Look at Luke 23, verse 50, 46 again. He called out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And Luke puts it this way. And having, did, having said this, he breathed his last. I'm going to remind you of Matthew chapter 27, verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. I'm assuming he's talking about the seventh saying from the cross. We're assuming he's talking about that. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And watch, watch Matthew's version. He yielded up his spirit. Write this thought. The Bible is crystal clear that Jesus sovereignly, willfully released his spirit. Sovereignly released his My point I want to make is he's completely in control of everything that's happening. Remember all these loud cries, loud cry, one after another. Like three of the last four things are said to be a loud cry. Hey, guys, my mom passed away back in November. She was not at a point when she was dying where she could make three loud cries at her death. Why? Life was ebbing away, and I've seen very similar in other people. Jesus is still full of energy and strength. The point here is he chose to die. John's gospel says that the Jews, knowing that the next day was Saturday, the Sabbath, they don't want three men on a cross. And so they go to Pilate and they say, can we have their legs broken? So Pilate sends the soldiers, go break their legs. They break the first guy's leg. They break the third guy's leg. They come to Christ. They don't break his legs because he's already dead. Why is he already dead? Because Jesus knows in Exodus and Leviticus, no offering to God can have broken bones. And so before they have a chance to come and break his legs so he'll not be able to push up and suffocate quickly before 6 p.m. on the Friday night, Jesus decided, I'm not going to give you the chance to break my legs. I will go ahead and die when I choose to die. That's what the Bible teaches us. John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, No one can take his life. He has the power to lay it down, and he has the power to take it up. And now lastly, look again one more time. What happens in verse 46? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Write this down. In his last words, Jesus showed us how to die. This is how you die. It's coming. It's coming. It's coming. Not to scare us and don't think because, oh, I'm in my 30s, 40s, I'm fine. Do you know it's really likely before the end of 2023, somebody sitting here is going to die? Maybe me. When your time comes, this is how you die. You commit your spirit to God the Father. Go ahead and write this thought because I want to finish with this. In his final prayer, Jesus also modeled the ultimate trust every person must have in God. Everybody has to have this. What Jesus did, everybody needs to do it. He shows us how to die, and the way to die is putting your ultimate trust in God the Father. What Christ does is this. Father, the most valuable thing I have, humanly speaking, is my spirit. I'm entrusting it into your hands, and you are faithful. You cannot fail. Guys, I don't have time. I think in a few months when we get to Acts chapter 2, I think we're going to end up over in Psalm 16. Because Psalm 16 is a psalm that, listen, Jesus, like back in John 
19, verse 28, he knew some things and what had to be fulfilled. You with me? Watch. He knows what God the Father has said about him in Psalm 16, and it gives him great confidence. It gives him tremendous confidence. He tells the Father, I commit my spirit to you. He knows there is no jealous rivalry between me and the Father. This is not some concocted plan that I am his equal and he wants me to come down and become human so he can kill me and then bury me and suppress me in death. I know you're not doing that, Father. I entrust you with my spirit. I trust you fully and he found him faithful. I'm thinking of Paul. First, second uh, Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul, this is the last letter he'll write. He's going to die soon. It's the last letter he'll write. Paul tells Timothy, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded, convinced, that he is able to keep, guard, protect that which I've committed to him against that day. What that means is Paul is saying, Timothy, I'm old, I'm about to die. They're going to cut my head off, and they did. But Paul is saying, Timothy, I'm not ashamed. I know whom I believed. I know that he is faithful, and he's so strong and powerful. He will protect and keep that which I've committed. I've committed to him my very spirit, and he will keep it and guard it until that day. You say, what is that day? That day when my body on earth is reunited with my spirit. And guys, that's been 2,000 years. Paul's still not united with his spirit. In the same way, Jesus says on the cross, Father, I commit my spirit into your hands. He, hadn't, he didn't have to wait 2,000 years. Sunday morning early, Jesus was reunited with his body. Paul's still waiting. My mom's still waiting. One day they'll be reunited with their body. Christ knows, Father, you'll keep the most valuable thing I have. Where does such confidence come from? Jesus knew Psalm 16. If I were to ask you guys... Jeff, if you had us raise our hand, if you had us stand this morning, I could confidently stand. I would not be ashamed. I could stand as a statement that I have committed my spirit to Christ. And I'm confident that he will not lose what I've given him. He will protect it. He is faithful. He can't fail. I'm confident. If that were you and you're thinking... I kind of hope he asked us to stand. I want to stand. If that is you, can I ask you this question? What is your confidence in? Jesus' confidence, no doubt, came partly from Psalm 16. So I'm asking you, where is your confidence in? You say, I'm confident in God. Okay. Based on what? Jeff, you've preached to us. You told us. Based on what I say. I have passages of Scripture. They're mine. Y'all have heard them over and over. I'm asking you right now. What is your passage of Scripture that you know? I have committed my soul and spirit, my very life. I've already done it. I've given my whole life. And Jeff, when I come to die, I hope I have the mind and wits about me before I go unconscious to do it again. And just not to get saved again. But just right at the end. And Lord, I'm committing. I'll see you in a minute. You're going to get me. Take me there. I'm trusting you. What passage of Scripture comes to your mind right now? What do you run to? If you're sitting there, I I can't think of one. You need to have something you're anchoring your faith on. 
I run to John 1.12. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. I run to John 3.16. God, this is what the Bible says. God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whoever believed, even me, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I've done that. I believe in John 6.37. Jesus says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me. And he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. I've done that. He can't say no. I brought, I brought John 6.37 to him. I brought John 1.12 to him. I brought John 3.16 to him. You know I love Acts 16.31. Believe on the Lord. You said, God, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. I'm doing that. I like Romans 10.13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Those are mine. What is yours? Those are mine. What is yours? What are you trusting? Heads bowed, eyes closed this morning. Have you given your spirit to God? Your sin is great. Your sin is great. But Christ's death is greater. He took your torment so that you'll never be tormented. He was abandoned so that you'll never be apart from God if you receive salvation the way He commands it. Salvation is only received by faith. So I really mean this. I'm almost done. You cannot hear this message and start thinking, man, it just doesn't really speak to me. I'm ready to go home. You better not hear this message and say, I don't believe that. I reject that. But equal to those, ladies and gentlemen, you better not in any part of your mind think, wow, Jesus did so much on the cross. If I believe in him and I'm a good person and add my morality and my religious performance to what he did, then surely God will let me into heaven. If you taint faith with that kind of works thinking, you have ruined the whole equation. God will not let anyone into heaven with a blended faith in their works and Christ. Jesus says, it is finished. He's done it all. All you can do is just believe God's promises like the five I gave you. What is yours? If you've never done that, I invite you right now to hear those promises fresh and new. Bring God into your consciousness right now. Bring God into your consciousness. If you've never done it, you say, I've never committed my spirit to God. Then bring Him into your consciousness right now and say, Father, I'm calling on the name of your Son to save me. And then call on Him. Call on Christ as Lord. Call Him your Lord. Jesus, you are my Lord and I receive you as my Savior. I believe in what you did on the cross. Believe the promises of God. You say, Jeff, what are we believing? You're believing Jesus, that his death was enough, and that it was for you, and you're believing the promises of God about Jesus' death when he says, whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what the Bible promises. We who are Christian, I invite you to do that if you've never done it. Do it right now. Confess your sins to the Lord and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. Take God up on His offer. Don't add anything to it. And Christians, as we stand, let's stand. I invite you as we pray. Christians, 
won't you just go ahead and when I pray, you thank God for the gift of his son and thank Jesus for being the propitiation for your sins, for taking your sins upon himself and your abandonment, your forsakenness, and he experienced it. Your wrath, he experienced it, and mine, and all who will ever put their faith and trust in him. Thank him for that. And then while you're at it, if you have some known sin in your life, known sin, then be reminded, God, you hate my sin. I'm reminded this morning how serious you are about sin. You hate my sin. I've not confessed this. It's part of my fellowship has been broken. I've not confessed it. Lord, I'm, I want this out of my life. By your grace, I'll not do that again. Lord, I confess this specific sin. Thank him for Christ. Thank Jesus. Confess your sin. And let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, Jesus is your word made flesh. He reveals your heart. You've told us that. He reveals your mind. And we thank you for the things we've learned the last two weeks about you from what Jesus said. We believe his death is enough. It is finished. It's too late for us to try to add anything to it. So we just receive your free offer of a completed gift paid for through Christ. Lord Jesus, we exalt you as the king and the great prophet and our great high priest. You are completely holy and unique. No one has ever been like you. No one ever will be like you. No one, not even the Holy Spirit nor the Father is exactly like you. And the Father, you are unique. Holy Spirit, you are unique. Jesus, you're one of us. And yet, God, at the same time, and so we right now as Graceview Church, all of us right now are thanking you specifically for taking our abandonment and our punishment, our eternal wrath for us because you loved us and you're the expression of God the Father's love to us. You loved us first and now we love you. We pray it in your name. Amen. Have a great week.